Let's get started, y'all. Our first Sunday back in August, we had just under 100 people, so I've managed to whittle it down to, to this. Go ahead and have your Bible open to Romans 8. We're going to look at the end of the chapter. Romans 8, one last time. Um, <clears throat> the one thing coming up that I want to make sure you remember we're going to gather up at Guy and Patty Berry's house on the 31st. That's a Sunday night. That's three weeks from tonight. Sunday night, roughly 6 to 9. So if you want to have a real New Year's party, you have to go somewhere else. Like I said last week, we're going to count down to 9 o'clock. All right. Good night. I think the last time I stayed up to midnight for that was 2000. I haven't done it since. <laughs> parking lot. After party in the parking lot. Okay, I'm supposed to go over all the announcements, but I'm not. Um, well, I will. Next Sunday, 10 o'clock. Not 8.30, not 11. 10 o'clock. Does everybody get that? And then another at 4.30 if you want to come twice. Um, remind you about the year-end giving. We are praying for a million dollars. And the reason being, we're going to enclose the pavilion out there to make a really cool building because um, we need more space for student ministry. And there are some new pictures of it right out here in the hall if you want to go look at them. All right? <clears throat> And that's about it. So let me uh, pray for us as we get ready to study. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us today, for the Lord's Day, the market day of the soul. And we ask that as we look at this great chapter one last time, that you would ravish our souls with your goodness and your grace and your mercy to undeserving people like us. Be our teacher and help us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. The big theme of, of Romans 8, I've been telling you, is assurance. I can be sure not only that Christianity is true, but that I am one, and that I, once I am one, I cannot not be one. That's impossible. Uh, what we looked at last time is the sort of culminating question in verse 31. Look at it. What then shall we say to these things? If all this is true, then what do we say? And then Paul answered that with some more questions. And we looked at them last time. They are rhetorical questions, which means the answer is so plain and strong and obvious that you don't even need to say it. Right? Thir uh, 31b. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Well, of course he will. 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's 
elect. Nobody, since it is God who justifies. 34, who is to condemn? Nobody, because Christ has already done everything. He is the one who could condemn, but look at what he's done. He's the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, the place of power and authority, the head and king of the church, and is also praying for us, so there's nobody that can condemn us. Now he summarizes all that with the fifth and the last question. So let's read the question. It's in verse 35 and uh, the answer. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Any of those things? As it is written... And this is from Psalm 44. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then verse 37, he answers his question, his own question. No. In all these things, there's that phrase, all things again. See it? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus <coughs> our Lord. So there it is. Chapter 1 began with um, no condemnation. Go back to verse 1. I'm sorry, chapter 8 began with no condemnation. See verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now it ends at verse 39, no separation, period, end of argument. A Christian can be sure, can have assurance that having put his faith in Christ, he cannot fall out of salvation and be lost again. There is no separation. Now, let me go back to the, what we said the very first Sunday about uh, the main, I think, really the main application for us as fourth lappers. Is that all right? Fourth lappers. Life is a four-lap mile, and unless you're going to live to be 105 or 10, you're on your fourth lap. You're on the bell lap. Ding, 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 ding. You ever watch the Olympics? Run a mile or run a half mile. When you get to the 400 left to go, they ring the bell. It's the bell lap. So we want to finish well, right? We want to finish well. So if it's, it's as simple as this. If you are sure of your future and you don't have to worry about it anymore, then you are free to finish well. Do you understand? That's fairly simple. You are free to focus on other people, to focus on serving people, to focus on loving people, rather than having to think so much about myself because I'm not sure I've done enough and blah, blah, blah. If I'm, I'm sure that I'm anchored, my future is set, then I'm free to finish well. Does that make sense? Or think of it like this. 
if that's true, if it's true that I cannot be lost again, then you can worship and serve and work out of joy and gratitude rather than because you're afraid not to. You understand the difference? I worship and serve because I'm scared not to, because I'm not quite sure I've done enough yet. But if that's not the way it works, if I'm secure because God loved me before creation, He's laid hold of me before creation and He can't, he can't and won't let go, if that's the way it works, then I can worship and serve and work and love people out of joy and gratitude. That's the difference. That's the practical difference that this makes. All right, so nothing can separate us. That's, what he, that's the whole chapter. It's the, he really hits it hard on the end. But then somebody says, well, wait a minute. Wait just one minute. <clears throat> I can quit. I'm free to quit. I can separate myself from Christ. Right? Things can happen to me, bad things, and I can change my mind and decide I don't believe this anymore it happens a thousand times every day, and nowadays when people do that, they put it on social media so everybody can know and they're a big hero. You know, I've outgrown that. I'm smarter than that now. I promise you, you can find 10,000 of those every day on the Internet. So what are those people doing? Were they Christians? And then they, they, they seem to disprove this, don't they? Well, let's remember that uh, Paul was a smart person. And Romans is laid out like a dialogue. It's a back and forth argument. And Paul is responding to uh, an imaginary debate partner. So he answers objections all through Romans. Objections to why Christianity can't be true. Why the good news of free grace can't be true. Why it... It is true, even though it seems too good. He's answering those things as he goes. So you would think that, he's, that he would have thought of that. Somebody would say, well, I can separate myself. Nothing can separate me from Christ, but I can separate myself. I have a free will. I can quit whenever I want to. Well, don't you think he answered that? I think he did answer that, as we'll see. So the question, verse 35, is who shall separate us? All right, let's think of everything we can think of that Mike could. So what he does, if you, as you look at the verse, look at 35, he brings out seven possible separators. Count them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven possible separators, and then he dismisses them. Can't do it. Then he brings out ten more possible separators, and he dismisses them. Now, the heart of this, part, this end of the letter, the heart of this last paragraph, is verse 37, which is really just a more colorful restatement of verse 28. You've got to see that. Verse 37 is just verse 28 again, said in a different way. So you've got seven possible separators, verse 28 revisited, and then ten more possible separators... Conclusion, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, including we ourselves, once he has loved us savingly. Now let's, let's uh, make sure we're clear about something. Look at the question in verse 35. It says, who shall separate us 
from the love of Christ, and I think you know this, but let's, let's just make sure. What, whose love is when it says the love of Christ, he's not talking about our love for Christ. We all see that? Don't, make sure you see that. He's not talking about our love for anything, our love for Christ. Um, when he says the love of God at the end of verse 39, see that? Does he mean our love for God or does he mean God's love for us? Well, the whole context cries out that what's in view here is the triune God's love for us, God the Father and God the Son. Because if, if any of this is riding on my love for God, then I'm in trouble and you're in trouble. Because it goes up and down and up and down and it'll go up and down right to the, right to the last day. Um, look at the context. Verse 28, God works all things together. Verse 29, God foreknew. Verse 30, God predestined. God called. God justified. God glorified. Verse 31, God is for us. 32, God did not spare His own Son. 33, God who justifies. 34, God the Son died. God the Son is interceding for us. Do you see what that is? That's Christianity. God does it. That's the difference between Christianity and everything else right there. God does it. So who can separate us from God's love for us? That's the question. Can anything break it loose? And what can separate us from Christ's love for us? Can anything shake it loose? Right? My love for God is inconsistent. It wavers. Sometimes it flares up. Sometimes it grows cold. Yours may be flared up today, may be cold today. That's beside the point. That's not what this is about. So the question is not, can you stand up to tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? The answer is no. I can answer that for you. We can't stand up to that. But the question is rather, can Christ's love Hang on to us. All right? Look at the list in verse 35. These are, these are bad things. If anything could make us quit, tribulation. Uh, the, uh, the Greek word there has to do with pressure, being squeezed. Our English word there comes from the Latin word from a threshing sledge which was a farm implement, kind of like a plow. So the picture embedded in that word is of circumstances pressing down on you so hard you feel like you're being torn up under a plow. Anybody ever been there? But can that, can that shake God's grace, shake it to where it lets go? Distress, that comes from a word that means a narrow space. So the picture in that word is of being con confined, trapped in circumstances that are terrible and there seems no way out, no escape. Can that shake God's grip on you? Can, it, can that shake it loose? Persecution, we know what that is. Things that happen to you strictly because you're a Christian. Um... 
you know, we, we don't live in the worst of times, but we could, we could be getting headed down that way. Um, remember I told you that a lot of the first people who read this letter were eaten by lions and tigers. Famine. Famine is a lack of food. Very common in the ancient world. They didn't have technology for food production, the way, so, so famine was a very common thing. Well, if I'm getting hungry, is that going to shake God's love loose from me? Nakedness. And in Paul's day, that just meant poverty. Famine, nakedness together means economic hard times. Can that separate us from Christ's love for us? Danger, that's a generic word that highlights all of this. Sword, well, that's what you were executed with. Murder, martyrdom. Now, let me pause and ask a question. Where did Paul get that list? Keep thinking. Where did he get that list? That was his experience, right? You're right, but he knew about all these things. Um, in 2 Corinthians 11, you find a little piece of autobiography from Paul that sounds almost exactly like this list. It's almost the same thing. He experienced all this except the last one, and a few years after he wrote this letter, he got the last one as he was beheaded uh, in Rome around 64 A.D. Now that sort of thing in that, in that list of seven, those sorts of things have been so common through the whole history of God's people, through church history, in the Old Testament, that uh, Paul backs it up here with an Old Testament quotation, as he does all the time. And he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, which says... For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, what a sad, sorry picture that is. Does that sound like a bunch of victorious conquerors? So that's, that's the, the, the image that Paul chooses to, to picture us. That's us. That's our history. That's, that's our story. That's how we look in the eyes of the great and the powerful and the important and the movers and the shakers. We look like that. Killed all day long, sheep to be slaughtered. And then, then you come to verse 37, and Paul answers the question that he asked in 35. Shall any of those things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sorts, any of those things, and you get to verse 37, and he says, No. That's how he begins. No. Can any, of, the, any of, of that separate us from Christ's love? Can any of that cause his grip to let go of us? And he says no. Now, we, we've, we've said that there's almost a tone of ridicule in these questions, starting at verse 31, almost a, a mockery. Um, and you, you see that here. No. And then, and then that leads into that word that Paul uses that's translated more than conquerors. In all these things, 
We are more than conquerors. Now, I, I got excited and I let the, the cat out of the bag last time. I couldn't resist bringing it up. The, the Greek word that Paul used there, he, he had no idea what an interesting word that would turn out to be for Christians in the 20th and 21st centuries. No idea. Because the heart of that term, it's one Greek word, more than conquerors, the heart of that term is the word Nike. Now, I know they're all pagans up in the northwest, so that, that's probably where they got the name for their shoe. They looked back into Greek mythology, because they're all pagans, and they found the, the, uh, the name of the Greek goddess of victory, and that's Nike, the Greek goddess of victory. So, and then the, that's, the, that's the, the heart of the word. It's a compound word. And then the first part of the word is the Greek word for super or above and beyond or far and away. So he's saying we are super victorious. We are victorious far and away. We are, we are victorious above and beyond. Super Nike. And with that word, of course, he's mocking the question. Can any of those things separate us? Oh, no. We're victorious way beyond what we need to be. And all those things we conquer. And then some. We conquer with room to spare. Now, it's a very strange picture here. It's a beautiful picture, and it's ridiculous at the same time because look at 36 and 37 together. Look at 36 and 37 together, and what do you see there? What you see there is the heart of Christianity. What do you see when you put 36 and 37 together? Somebody say it. It sounds ridiculous. That's the point. Go ahead and say it. You have, you see, you have sheep and conquer together. You have sheep that are good for nothing to be killed that are more than conquerors. They don't go together. Right? You have might and weakness held together. And I always love to say this is where Christianity is different from everything else. This is what proves, one of the things that proves, that no human beings could ever have made this up. Ever, because nobody would have thought of such a thing. Might and weakness at the same time in the same people. But that's us. That's the people of the cross, right? At the cross was where might and weakness were found in the same, in the same person at the same time. Now this might, of course, we have, we have to be sure we notice, is not in us, Right? Through him who loved us. See the second half of the verse? Through him who loved us. It doesn't say we conquer. Notice this. It doesn't say we conquer because we avoid these things. It says we conquer in all these things. Now let me make sure you notice. All things. See it? Verse 37. All things. Go back to the more famous verse 28. All things, these are the same all things. Verse 37, verse 28, 
all things, it's the same all things. Do you see? So he's saying that when we conquer, it's not because we avoid all things. And if you remember when we talked about verse 28, the context of the chapter, all things, is especially our suffering. Not just includes our suffering, but it's especially our suffering, all of it. All things work for good. Remember what we said back there at that verse? Everything that happens to you, Christian, the worst, the best, and everything in between, it only serves to keep you on the road to glory and push you further down that road. That's what all those things do. And now he brings up the same all things in verse 37 and says that we conquer through those things, which means all these things cannot shake us loose. They can't shake us loose. God uses all of it, not to ruin us, not to kill our faith, not to make us quit, but to push us down the road to glory. Paul himself, I mean, think of this, a worn-out old man. Think of him laying his head down on a chopping block, judged unfit to live by the powers of the world. What weakness, and yet more than a conqueror. There it is. Through him who loved us. Not us ourselves, but him who loved us. That's where the strength comes from. That's where our ability to persevere comes from. Now, when he says, through him who loved us, what do you think that's talking about? Loved us. Loved us when? You could, you could say he's talking about the cross, but he's already made that point in verses 33 and 34. He's already talked about, in 32, he's already talked about the cross. When did he love us? When he came down and hmm? Hmm, true. Keep going back. Keep going back before that. Yeah, go all the way back to the front end of the thing. For new. Did Matt talk about that word? I hope he did. It doesn't just mean he knew something about you. That doesn't mean anything. God knows everything in that way before it comes. But he knew you ahead of time. And consistently in the Old Testament, that word means loved. So foreknew in verse 29 means loved you beforehand which coincides with predestination, loved beforehand. So God set his love on you before you existed, before creation. He laid hold and latched on, and that eternal purpose is activated in space and time when you freely believe the gospel, and nothing can shake that grip loose. We should ask, though, then why is that so common today? It's so, in fact, it's so common that it's, in, in, it's almost a cultural phenomenon. It's a thing. It's a thing that 
It's called deconstruction. It's so popular and so common that it's a, it's a thing. People do it by the gazillion all the time. Well, what, what, what gives with that? Doesn't that disprove this? I think that's the only possible answer to this if we're going to stay consistent with our theology, which we have to do. Yes, the, the, uh, since the, well, in my lifetime, the, um, the gospel has been cheapened, made easier, and so people have embraced caricatures of Christianity. They've embraced um, distortions of it. And then... When times get hard, they quit. And they say, I was a Christian and I quit. But they had never embraced the real thing. In fact, I brought this. This is Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God. He came out in 2016 and he talks about, even that's, you know, however many years ago that is, seven years ago. And he talks about this. And listen to this, because this has to do with Romans 8.28. Everything works for good. Everything works out for good. Now listen, listen to this. A person might have a tacit belief that if I'm a Christian and God loves me, there's a limit to how badly life can go for me. Right? Isn't that true? No. Such an idea is not a part of Christian doctrine. Indeed, the life of Jesus, the suffering servant, contradicts it. Yet it can seem to be a necessary inference from some Christian texts, read Romans 8, misunderstood, and teachings, and it can be absorbed from the attitudes of others in a community. Look at me, I'm a Christian, I've got everything together, nothing real too bad is going to happen to me, right? Then, if the believer's life begins to go terribly wrong and this tacit belief begins to crumble, all the other teachings of the faith can seem unconvincing as well. So they had, a person like that had embraced a God who doesn't exist and a Jesus who doesn't exist. And then when it got hard, we'll see, it doesn't work, so I quit. And if you, if you read the testimonies of these gazillions of people, most of them younger, that do this, nine times out of ten, the reason they will give is evil and suffering in the world. That'll be the reason. A lot of times something happened in their own family because they, they, they went in with this idea in the back of their head, well, now that I'm a Christian, nothing really bad can happen to me, and it does. And they conclude it's not true, so I quit. Or you could think of Jesus' parable of the, the soils, the seed's thrown into shallow soil and it doesn't take root. And you could almost say the soil has been made very shallow in my lifetime and so there's lots of seeds that sprang up but they did, did not take root, did not bear fruit, and then now they're quitting by the scores. The point is it doesn't disprove this. It doesn't. And the lesson, is, if anything, is make sure 
that you have laid out hold on to the actual true Jesus who is there on his terms, not yours, on his terms. And his purpose, if you keep reading the next verse, is to made, be made conformed to the likeness of Jesus, which is a hard life. It's a hard life. Well, I didn't sign up for a hard life, so I quit. Oh, you quit. Well, that, see, that proves it. You can be a Christian and be lost again. That's what I hear in this chapter. So what I hear in this paragraph. Well, if you don't, you're going to, you know. And, and the thing, if you have a, ever have a friend who does this, here's what you ask them. Okay, you don't believe this anymore. Now what do you believe? Let's talk about that. Right? Because you can't, you can't unsee things that you've seen. Well, anyway, let's finish up. Uh, by the way, I do want to read one cross-reference just so we'll know Paul isn't the only ones that said stuff like this. Jesus said exactly the same thing in uh, John 10, 27. Just listen. Jesus said, uh, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We don't even need Romans 8. That's all, all we needed was that. All right. I'm sure. And then here comes another catalog of possible separators. And, and notice here that he switches to the first person. What does that tell us? He's saying, well, this is true for me too. I'm one of you. This is true for me. This is about my life and my soul. This is not academic. This is not book learning. This is life and death, real world, cold stone, sober reality. And look what he says. Neither death, there's the greatest of all separators. He puts it first. Can death separate us? No, he lists that first. Uh, nor life. Now, isn't that strange? Now, why would he say that? Because sometimes life can be worse than death, right? But life at its worst can't separate us. Life or death, nor angels nor rulers. I would suggest that's a pair. They go together. Angels, why would an angel even do that? I don't know, but rulers, so in that little context, that little pair there, I would suggest rulers means demons, means demonic powers. So nothing in the unseen spiritual world, in other words. Nor things present, nor things to come. What's he saying there? What's he summarizing when he says things present, things to come? 
time, time as we experience it. Now we're in the present. Now we're in the, in the future. Things present, things to come. Nor powers. What is a power in the New Testament? Miracles, the same, the same idea. Miraculous powers. No miraculous powers can separate you from Christ. Nor height nor depth. Now what's he saying with that? He, he's laid out all of time. Now when he says height and depth, what's he laying out? All of space. Height, depth. Uh, literally, the words that he literally uses means nothing below the horizon and nothing above the horizon. That's everything. Go, go read Psalm 139. Where can I go? I can't go. If I go as far as I want to the east, as far as I want to the west, I can't get away. Death, life, angels, demons, powers, space, time. You see what he's doing? He's ransacking the universe. He's thinking of everything he can think of. He's ransacking the universe and his own vocabulary. What, what else is there? Death, life, angels, demons, powers, space, time. There's nothing else. That's all I can think of. Oh, wait a minute. I, for, for good measure, I'll add one more thing. And what is that? Anything in creation. Um, <clears throat> the ESV says anything else in all creation uh, the, the NAS says, just a little more literal, says any created thing, any created thing in all creation. Now, what does that, what question does that answer? Does that include you? Are you a created thing? Then you can't separate yourself from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing and no one in creation includes you yourself, period. That's it. Over. End of argument. Nothing can separate us. Now let's ask one more time. If that's true, then, then uh, if I can't be lost, then that means I can sin freely. It doesn't matter how I live anymore. Right? No, Paul has been answering that criticism over and over and over and over and over again. Of course it doesn't mean that. But I, let me say this, say it like this. The more you understand and believe what's contained in this eighth chapter and, and in other places too, especially these last nine verses, the more I understand and believe that, the greater my love for Christ is going to be. That's just, it's an inverse. That's, it's a law, a spiritual law that's unbreakable. The more I understand this on my behalf, the more... I want to serve and love him. That's just what happens. We say, well, well, you know, well, I can quit. I can quit myself. Well, if you have a new heart, which is part of the whole process, regeneration, if you have a new heart, it's all kind of moot because you aren't going to want to quit. Now, I say that. Uh, sometimes you do want to quit but it won't last. You might even try to quit. And some of these, some of these deconversions where people quit, you know, they come back, which means they were 
they were Christians. And if they were, they'll come back. It might take years. I don't know. All right. You ever heard of George Matheson? He was born in Scotland in 1842. He had bad eyes. He was blind by the age of 18. He was a university seminary student. He pastored several churches in Scotland. Uh, he became engaged. What a great blessing God gave him. But after a while, the young lady broke the engagement because she decided she couldn't be married to a blind man. And of course, that tore him up. And shortly after that happened, George Matheson wrote a hymn. And I'll just throw this out as a statement of the, of the application of this chapter. Here's the hymn that he wrote. Oh, love that will not let me go. Now, he wrote this after his fiance broke up with him because he was going blind. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe. There it is right there. I understand a love that will not let me go. What else can I do but give thee back the life I owe? There's the Christian life when you understand this doctrine. That in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. There's another application. I didn't write it down. Somebody, now somebody got to do this or we'll sit here all morning. Quote verse 4 of when I survey. Come on, somebody do it. Verse 4 of when I survey the wondrous cross were... No, that's the one I... I just said that. Were the whole realm, when I survey, were the whole realm of nature mine? That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, and that's what we've been talking about right here in this chapter. Demands my life, my soul. There it is. There's the application. All right. Uh, no more Sunday school for two weeks. Then we're all going to be together in here for four weeks of January.